Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. At Columbia University, I teach linguistics and, for some reason, music history and philosophy and sometimes even American studies. I have written Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English. More recently, The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language, which is now out in paperback and a very pretty one, I might add. And in January, there will be Talking Back, Talking Black, Truths About America's Lingua Franca. The lingua franca that that refers to is Black English. But that is in the future, and here we are today. I am honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer. And my guest this week is, frankly, me. I wanted to do this week's episode as a solo because I want to share something about our language, that's English, that doesn't get around much. And yet, it is, at least to me, a great deal of fun, especially because you wouldn't think of it from day to day. The counterintuitive is what's fun, at least from a scientific perspective. And today, I want to do some counterintuitive. Namely, I want to circle in on an issue that isn't as simple as it may seem. And that is the eternal question, where do words come from? Where do words come from? Well, we know they can come from other languages. So, you know, sushi or whatever. But, you know, that's not most words. And that's not really what we mean. Or we have a sense that words come from the past. But, of course, where did they come from? In the past of the past, the the blue past, you might call it. Well, imitation to an extent. So, you know, woof, woof. But that's not really what we mean either. There's also something that is called sound symbolism. So, for example, take the words glow, glitter, glimmer, glimpse. All of them have to do with a certain kind of sparkle, with a certain kind of like you would see on the dishes in a commercial for palm olive or something like that. It's not an accident that so many words like that begin with gluh. So in English, there's something about gluh that symbolizes a certain blink or slide, slop, slip, slither. All those words begin with slur, and all of them have a kind of a snaky mucoid feeling about them. It's not an accident. And in the case of both glut and slow, there are long lists where it's clear that there's a certain amount of sound symbolism. But even there, if we say, where do words come from? What I just told you is as if you thought you were going to get a Thanksgiving dinner 
and all that you were served was life cereal. You know, life cereal is pretty good, but it's not dinner. It's frankly even an inadequate breakfast. What we really mean is where do words come from? Not these little tricks and marginal cases, but, you know, Daisy, where did that word come from? You're watching Downton Abbey. Daisy, where did her name come from? Why do they call her that? What's actually to use Downton Abbey? What's a barn? Where did that come from? It's certainly not sound symbolism. A barn doesn't sound like anything. For example, it's different in any language you think of. I'm sitting here trying to think God knows what barn is in any other language. The only thing I can retrieve right now is that in Russian, it's Sarai. Now, I imagine to Russians, that sounds like a barn, whereas in English, it sounds kind of like life cereal. And there you go. So barn, it's not about some burp that the barn makes. Why is it called a barn? Well, to answer this question partway, and there's an extent to which that question will be an eternal mystery, but to answer it partway and in a way that I think is more satisfying than talking about sound symbolism and meow, we have to start with something that's going to seem unrelated and then we're going to circle in. This is what I mean by this is kind of fun, depending on what you call fun. I'm going to open with a question to our guest, who is me. John, why do people talk so funny in old movies? Well, John, if I know what you mean, don't worry, I'm not going to keep that up after this. If I know what you mean, you mean something like, say, in The Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy in 1934, where you're listening to them and it's not as if that movie was made during the Renaissance or something like that. It's a world that we can more or less recognize. But now and then they say things in rather funny ways. And so, for example, there's a conversation that Nick and Nora Charles, who are the characters that Powell and Loy play, are having, where they pronounce the word suspect a little strangely. Let's listen to how they say it. And notice it's not just him, it's her too. Have you got a nice evening gown? Oh, what's that got to do with it? Have you got a nice evening gown? Yes, I've got a Lulu. Why? I'm going to give a party and invite all the suspects. The suspects? Well, they won't come. Oh, yes, they will. There you go. They say suspect. All of a sudden, they sound kind of funny, like they're misreading their lines. But it wasn't a misreading, because they both did it. Suspect. Now, I think our first impulse is to think that they were trying to sound British, but they don't generally. They're a very all-American couple, and Americans did not have British accents in the 1930s as a rule. It's just this particular word, suspect, and they both do it. So it's not just some hiccup from one person. These are just people speaking in 1934. Actually, on the set of The Thin Man, all was very casual. They were not trying to be stiff. Those of you who've seen that movie will know that Nick is laying down while they have that conversation and yet suspect. Well, you know, sometimes you have a hair out of place and you have to let it go by. But if you watch old movies or listen to old movies, cases like this are, are rife. And so, for example, Sunset Boulevard, 1950. Again, that's not 1350. It's 1950. There are many, many people alive who are grown-ups in 1950. 1950, Sunset Boulevard, and William Holden, the protagonist, is doing a voiceover, and he makes a casual reference, and you'll hear something off if you listen closely right here. By this time, the whole joint was jumping. Cops, reporters, neighbors, passers-by. As much hoop-de-doo as we get in Los Angeles when they open a supermarket. Even the newsreel guys came roaring in. 
Here was an item everybody could have some fun with. Did you catch it? What's a supermarket? As much hoop-de-doo as we get in Los Angeles when they open a supermarket. I don't say that. I say supermarket. You're going to go to the supermarket. I would never say, well, let's go down to the supermarket and buy some beef. But William Holden said it. And if that were a missaying at the time, they would have had him do it again. It's clear that people thought that was quite normal. What is a suspect? Why would a suspect go to a supermarket? Well, the reason is something that's inside of any English speaker, especially any native English speaker, and it actually shows that our language isn't as dull as it can seem. And so if you're dealing with so many other European languages, they've got these fancy tables of conjugational endings and the nouns with the annoying genders and all these crazy word orders and languages like German. And then when you go to other parts of the world, they've got the tone. English can seem like it doesn't have as much stuff. And it's not only because English is so familiar to us. There's an extent to which English, as languages go, is more modestly complicated than the way some languages can be. But you know something? There are things that lie under the surface of this peculiar language that can give us a certain pride. They're little subtle things that we do all by ourselves without thinking that somebody else has to practice to do and they might never do it quite right. It's called the backshift, or at least I call it the backshift because I like calling it that. And what I mean is that in order to make something a noun, one way to do it is to shift the accent to the first syllable instead of the second syllable. So you can outlaw something, but a person running around doing things that have been outlawed is an outlaw. So you might want to outlaw the out law. You rebel against something and you don't become a rebel. You become a rebel. But you would never say that you were going to rebel against something. Rebel, accent on the second syllable, verb. Rebel, accent on the first syllable, is a noun. And it isn't just those words. This is systematic. This is a rule. This is how English works, just like we stick an S onto the end of a verb to make it third person singular. So you record something and does it become a record? No. Now you might say recording, but just as often you would say that you have made a record, not a record, but then you don't record something. You record it to record. When it turns into a noun, that accent shift to the front doesn't always happen immediately. So in 1934, there was still room for saying a suspect because to say suspect was not yet a hard and fast rule. So you were catching this kind of Archaeopteryx stage in the evolution of that word. There were people who were already saying suspect, but you could still say suspect. William Powell and Myrna Loy, for reasons we'll probably never know, were comfortable with that. And there it is, preserved in amber in that dandy film. But it's all based on a rule that we control subconsciously, just like Spanish speakers don't have any trouble with their magnificent irregular verbs. And so, for example, you can reject something, but notice that if you then look at all the things that have been rejected, you don't think of it as a collection of rejects. They are rejects, a reject. We do these things spontaneously. So, that's the first step in our journey. Where do words come from? Well, when it comes to a noun coming from a verb, it's this 
backshift. No, that's not quite what we meant, but there's more that happens with this backshift than just the difference between something like suspect and suspect. What do I mean? It's that when you take two separate words and put them together, that same backshifting is what can create a new word. So, for example, let's say that you've got a board, a plank. Now, let's say that you, you, you paint it black. Well, what is it? Well, frankly, irrelevant, but it's also a black board. Mommy, I now have a black board. Yesterday it was a purple board. Now it's a black board. But then there's something called a blackboard. A blackboard is something very specific. It's that thing that's vertical on the wall that is written on in school and in other instructional circumstances. So it's a blackboard. You would never say, go erase all that stuff that's up on the blackboard, unless for some reason you had hung some black painted plank up on the wall. And no one does that because you can buy a blackboard. Well, that's another example of this Backshift, because first you have a blackboard. Certainly, what we think of now as blackboard started as something people processed as, oh, ye board that is black, a blackboard. But once it becomes a thing, once it becomes something separate, something more specific than just some board that happens to be painted black, then subconsciously people start making that backshift. And so you have a blackboard. Blackboard is a brand new word. A blackboard is two words describing something inconsequential and happenstance. A blackboard is a new thing. It's a new noun. So it's not just what you can do to a verb that has a couple of syllables. You can also do it to two words that come together. The backshift is kind of like a catalyst for those of you who have endured chemistry. And so blackboard makes a new noun. Same thing with a blackbird. A blackbird is a crow or a pigeon that you grabbed and dunked into black ink or something like that. A blackbird is some specific bird that does something and has a particular Latin name. I happen to know that the name is Turdus, and that is a noun in itself. A blackbird is you describing something about a crow. They're interesting animals, by the way, but a blackbird is a specific Noun. It's a new thing. The backshift creates a thing. And so one way that we get new words is not only when two words come together, but when that backshift happens. So sometimes when you're learning about language, it'll be said that, well, one way that you get new words is two words come together. But that's that's only so interesting. I used to find compounds as a linguistic subject dull. For just that reason, especially since English seems so undramatic in that sense, when a language like German has Wohnwagen, Parkplatz, Einwohnerklagen, and that's um, complaints by people who live in mobile homes. You know, a German compound can be so big it can sink a boat. And then, you know, in English, we you know, blackboard. That doesn't seem as interesting. But this issue of accent, because it's something you would never think about and isn't just about kludging two things together, becomes interesting. You can even see people misapplying the rule, which means that it's in their head. There was a, a back in the 80s called Last Summer at Bluefish Cove. So, bluefish, it referred to that delicious, oddly oily fish, doesn't store well, but that especially when you're in the Northeast, you are familiar with Bluefish Cove. Now, I knew somebody who had been in a production of it, 
And you could just kind of tell that she had not grown up eating bluefish. And she always referred to the play as Last Summer at Blue Fish Cove. Last Summer at Blue Fish Cove. She didn't know what a bluefish was, I suspect, because it's easy to miss it. For example, if you grow up in California, you won't see one. So for her, she fixed it up so that it was Fish Cove, because, of course, since coves tend to have fish in them, you might think that there's a such thing as a fish cove. And so last summer, Blue Fish Cove. So this person had this backshift rule in her head. She was just misapplying it to that string of words. So the backshift. Now, where you can see the backshift doing even more interesting things is that the backshift can not only make a new word, but we can expand our sense of what a word is. We can take a more conceptual sense of what it is to speak a language, what it is to think, what it is to process the world. The backshift can happen to two words that effectively stay two words, but where you put the accent indicates whether or not the concept has become Maybe not what we would call a single noun all by itself, but what, especially in current American slang, we call a thing. It's a very interesting thing, and especially because we now have 100 plus years so amply recorded, and you can have it all at the push of a button, you can see the transitional stages in how things that we consider a things now weren't quite yet. So, for example, one might listen too much, in my case, to someone like Eddie Cantor. Eddie Cantor was, he started as a vaudevillian, and then he had a very prominent career in radio, a rather prominent career in movies. He never quite worked in television, but he was delightful. And in his time, he was as popular pretty much as Al Jolson, who for various reasons resonates down the ages more than Eddie Cantor. But to imagine Eddie Cantor, if you don't happen to know who he is, he was a kind of a a less layered Pee Wee Herman. He had that kind of presence. He looked kind of like that jolly fellow. Now, if you're watching every single one of his movies, you catch various things. And so, for example, in Strike Me Pink, a movie that he did, at the very end, he says something that sounds like he's misreading the line. Again, I'm going to let you listen to it. Here he goes at the end of Strike Me Pink, saying something which at the time was humorous and now kind of is. Here we go. Kiss me. Did you ever learn to kiss like that? I used to blow a bugle for the Boy Scouts. A Boy Scout. I've never heard of any Boy Scouts. I call it a Boy Scout. But here Eddie Cantor says, a Boy Scout. Okay. Now, that's not the only time. He does things like this often because we're listening to somebody speaking in the 1930s. And, of course, this person learned to speak long before that. Things were different at that point in terms of where the back shift was in which words. So, for example, this is a movie called Alibaba Goes to Town. And at one point in the unnecessarily convoluted plot, Eddie Cantor makes a reference to something that we know as a hot dog. But... Can I get a hot dog and a bottle of pop? Hot dog? Pop? That's the great national diet in America. I've just come from there. America? Where is that? I don't eat hot dogs. 
It almost makes it sound like it's a canine that's been put in the oven or something like that. A hot dog. But Eddie Cantor wasn't weird. He was a vernacular comedian. He was speaking to ordinary people. What was going on there is that, for example, the Boy Scouts only started in 1910. And so Eddie Cantor is talking when Boy Scout is a relatively novel concept. And if you think about it, when it starts, you're talking about these scouts, an attribute of whom is that they happen to be boys. You're going to start out saying the Boy Scouts. That's how you would first say it. But then as it becomes a familiar concept, they become the Boy Scouts, just like you have suspects and blackboards, a hot dog. If you think about it, if you are some mustachioed person with three names first encountering a low-grade kind of sausage that you put up with because you're outside and you're in a hurry, well, it's going to be, oh, I'll have one of those hot dogs. Then it becomes a hot dog because you're so used to it, they become so common. But of course, there's going to be a time when some people are still saying, boy, scout, hot dog. Eddie Cantor may have said Boy Scout and Hot Dog until the end of his life. His children most certainly have not. The Dick Van Dyke Show, and this is certainly not that long ago. It's in black and white, but it's in the Camelot era, 60s. You know, they don't have the internet, but they are living lives that are more or less like ours in a great many ways. And at one point, a woman of a certain age and then some is recreating a routine that the actress herself used to do on old radio in the 30s. And she is talking about crossword puzzles at one point, except listen to how she says it. Who knows why he's in the mood? Are you kidding, Mays? <laughs> we were doing a crossword puzzle. I said, give me a three-letter word meaning female sheep. He said you, and that started the whole <laughs> Just that little passing thing, a crossword puzzle. It seems so inconsequential, but if you think about it, nobody would say it that way now. You would say crossword puzzle. But crossword puzzles only became popular in the United States in the 1920s. That actress's name was Arlene Harris. She was born in 1896, and so she was already grown when crossword puzzles came in. She would have begun by calling them crossword puzzles. That's what everybody would have called them. And the habit would have settled in, and she went through her life calling them crossword puzzles as opposed to crossword puzzles. Did you notice that she had a beautiful voice? She's an actress I always look for in things of that era. Her voice sounds like like apple tobacco. Just listen to a bit of it again, just, just for the hell of it. Oh, Maisie, for heaven's sake. Don't you know all men are domineering? I told you, honey, you have to nip that right in the altar. Well, that's what I did. When Harry said, I do, I said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it's always been. Great voice, but crossword puzzle. And you can even make guesses with these sorts of things. And so take the French fry. Well, there are two words, and you've got the accent on the French. Okay. But, you know, you can just know, based on things like boy, scout, hot dog, crossword puzzle, that people at first must have said French fry. Oh, let's have some French fries. Then they started saying French fry when it became a thing. You can just guess it, but then the history bears you out. Go to Random House's Biggest Dictionary in 1966, and they are marking it as pronounced French fry. And I have asked some people who were very, very old 
how they say French fry. And of course, they say French fry because they've been hearing it all their lives. But if you listen to people who are very, very old and kind of don't let them know that you're listening, you can catch them sometimes saying French fry. I've done it. I once said, aha. And (laughs) the man had no idea what I was so interested in. But he was in his 80s. And I just knew that there was a part of him deep down inside that not only probably would have said crossword puzzle if he didn't think anybody was listening, but also French fry. Fascinating stuff. It's the backshift in any English speaker. The backshift creates a new noun. It creates a noun out of just a verb sitting there. It creates a noun out of two words that come together like they're dating. It creates basically a new thing out of two words that come together, even if they don't come completely together. And it's not just in black and white weird things. I want to give you one more that's in color so that we can really kind of smell it. An episode of Mary Tyler Moore. This is 1972. And everybody gets into a conversation about Chinese food. Now, listen to everybody talking in this clip. This is in color. These are people who are having premarital sex and going to discotheques and talking about the pill. These are modern people. And yet, listen to the way they talk about Chinese food. Uh, guess what we have in here? Yeah, Chinese Ch- food. Right. We, we heard you. Uh, Mr. Rhoda, when you get upstairs, would you call my father and see if he can come over and let us in? Well, come on up with us and we'll all have Chinese food. Why are you so excited about Chinese food? Well, you never had it before. <laughs> Oh. Can you believe this? A man who has never had Chinese food in his whole life? Listen, Rod, I owe you a lot. You're opening up a whole new world for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what, what did you say that was again? An egg roll. <laughs> Chinese food. <laughs> Let's have some Chinese food. Why, why are they saying it like that? It's actually kind of predictable if you think about it. 1972 was modern in some ways, but Chinese food was a relatively new thing. It wasn't practically default food for people like those characters as it is for some of us today. So that means that at first you're talking about, well, why don't we have some Chinese food in the way that even today you might say, why don't we have some Martian food? Because it's something relatively rare. But as time goes by, once it becomes a thing, once it isn't something exotic, I remember when I was six how exotic it was in those little containers with the fortune cookies and the overcooked spare ribs. But now it's not exotic. It's just food. And so the backshift is subtly going to happen. And so you don't say, let's have some Chinese food. You say, let's have some Chinese food. I'm quite sure that if we talk to Valerie Harper Today, she would say, let's have some Chinese food. She does not say Chinese food because it's been too much time. But back then, it was brand new. So this is the backshift in your life. And it always has interested me because it's happening in the background, but it's happening all the time. And like anything interesting, there are hairs out of place in the theory of it. There are people who have studied this really hard. And there are exceptions that really cannot be explained easily. And so, for example, with Street and Avenue, Broad Street, I say as a Philadelphian, you don't say Broad Street. You don't talk about it being a broad street, although you can be quite sure that somebody from early Philadelphia, you know, retching from yellow fever or interested in the Declaration of Independence or whatever, would have said, oh, let us hie ourselves down the broad street. 
but it became a thing. And so today you say Broad Street and you do that with any street. Duh, street. But then Fifth Avenue. Now, an awful lot of things have happened on Fifth Avenue, but for some reason with Avenue, you don't have the back shift. So Fifth Avenue, if you were going to live on something like I'm going to make up a name. It's it's Green Avenue. You would say, I live on Green Avenue. You would never say, I live on Green Avenue. And you would think that maybe it's because Avenue is longer than street, but Lane isn't longer than street. And yet notice Penny Lane, da-da-da-da. You would say Penny Lane. Penny Lane. You don't say Penny Lane. I grew up on Marion Lane in Philadelphia. Nobody said, oh, do you live on Marion Lane? It was 7024 Marion Lane. It was the perfect house. It was not special in any way. It was a little duplex, but it had four bedrooms upstairs. I'm doing a little nostalgia here. It had two full bathrooms. It had a sunken living room. The the living room, actually, you would have to step down into it. That made it feel somehow profound. Half bathroom there. It was magenta. Half bathroom in the basement. The basement was modestly finished. It smelled like mold. I like it. I've never gotten over that house. I should have therapy about it, but it was on Marion Lane, not Marion Lane. So there are wrinkles, but the general theory is rather secure, which is that the backshift is what creates nouns, the backshift is what creates a thing, and the backshift happens gradually so that you can catch it before it's happened in cases such as Mary Tyler Moore. So what I have started this out saying is that I want to tell you where new words come from. Now, I've overshot it a little bit with Chinese food. But to get back to that particular point, here's where you really see what we think of as word words happening because of the backshift. So, for example, I was once in a relationship with somebody where I learned three things. One, about drinking coffee every morning. I hadn't done it then. Two, that you can put Grand Marnier over certain desserts. And three, that you could call a saucepan a saucepan. She had British heritage, saucepan. The first time she said that, I thought that I had had a stroke or something. Saucepan, if you're going to use the word at all. But she said saucepan. Now, that was interesting because it meant that saucepan had undergone the backshift. But instead of just being saucepan, where we have a sense of what it is, saucepan, where you have to work to connect pun with pan at all. So saucepan is really just a brand new word that you can't even split up as opposed to a saucepan. That can go so far that you can barely pull anything apart at all. So, for example, I refer to the area above my eyebrows as my forehead. Now, we know how it's written. It's a forehead. But I learned that when I learned how to read. A forehead. To me, it might as well have been spelled F-A-R-R-I-D. For and head have come together to create a brand new word, forehead. Now, the pronunciation on that one varies. But think about a cupboard. Now, it's from cupboard, but to be honest, I don't really know what a cupboard is. I imagine Dickens' characters had boards that they put cups on, but a cupboard today has a lot more than cups in it. If it has cups at all, isn't it a, a pantry or something? So cupboard, really C-U-B-B-E-R-D, is a brand new word. The connection with cup and board is now basically archaeological, except that the screwed up spelling gives it away. Hence, also those weird nautical words, you know, bosun, and you find out that it's spelled boat swain. Well, it's just been so long, the accent 
is up front. It's said quickly. Things start kludging together. Next thing you know, you've got a bosun or a forecastle. I don't really know what that is, but I know that you don't say forecastle. You say folksle. And so you have a brand new word. The for and the castle are really just etymology. If it were a purely spoken language, nobody could even figure out that folksle came from for and castle. And finally, you get the ones where you can't even see the origin on the page. Hence, we get to Daisy. Daisy started out as Day's Eye. And you can imagine somebody calling the flower that. Well, if you say it over and over again, then you get a daisy. And pretty soon, you're not thinking about days and you're not thinking about eyes. It's a daisy. You've got a brand new word. So it didn't come from some ancient root like Pesach or something like that. It came from days and I or barn. Barn is interesting. There used to be a word for barley. It was bera. There used to be a word iron, really ugly word, and it meant roughly house. And so a barley house was a bare iron, just like a dormitory was a sleep iron, and where you put the horses was a horse iron, and so on. Well, a barley iron, a barn, barn, barn. That's where barn came from. Barn started out as a compound. The back shift happened. Pronunciation muddied things up. And now we've got barn. And there are a great many words with that history where you would never suspect. World started out as two words. Bring started out as two words. And I don't have time to explain to you the origin of those, but you get the basic principle about the backshift in your life, and it tells you where an awful lot of words come from. They come not from people imitating animals or anything else, nor do they come from Japanese. They're not borrowings from French. They come from this very interesting process that happens right within this homely language that we speak, and it's going on all the time, and we don't even know it. It's like those bacteria in our guts that we're learning more and more about. It's just there. It's part of our heritage, the back shift in your life. You can read more about it in a certain book that's coming out in about five minutes from Henry Holt. It's called Words on the Move. I wrote it, and there's a whole chapter in it about compounds where you'll learn about how pizza, cell phones, and repeat stress syndrome all fit into all of this, too. You can even hear that rendition of the subject in the audible version of the book recorded by yours truly, but then you don't get the sound clips. Audible isn't going to like it that I said that, but oh well. Anyway, I want to thank my guest for this week. Thank you for being on, John. Thank you, John. And I'd like to ask you to tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Efim Shapiro. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, listen. Nobody says listen. So if you think about it, why would anybody want to say often? Just saying. And I will see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>